As they're sitting down, would you open your Bibles to the book of Mark? We're going to be in chapter 13 in just a few, just a couple of verses today. Mark 13, verses 26 through 31. If you've got your Bibles, I would ask you to open to them. I don't have the scripture to put up on the board this morning because I, I, I like the idea of you at least looking at a Bible, even if it's on your little scroll, uh, but to look on it and to follow along here. Verse 26, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heaven, heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that uh, it is near and it's right at the, the door. So I tell you, truly, this generation will certainly not pass away Till all these things have happened, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's God's word. Would you pray with me as we go into his word? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that's a light and it's a lamp for us today. And it's my prayer that in the time we have, that maybe you'll speak to us individually. You'll begin to say things to us that you'll speak to us on the way home and speak to us well into next week that your word is, speaks way more eloquently than I do. And that's my prayer that that would um, be a part of that for us today, that your word would, would shine in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I, you know, I'm not really good at the sermon titles. Um, if you been around here a while, you know that to be true. But if I were to, if I were to title what I was going to say today, it's that the second verse is not the same as the first. That Jesus' return the second time is going to look different than the first time. First time, there was a star in the sky, right, over Bethlehem. Second time, stars are falling out of the sky. Right. First time, you got a baby in swaddling clothes. Second time, Revelation 1 tells us there's going to be a dude with a sword opening up a can of whoop God. Okay. These are not the, sa- this is not the same as the first. And as I was thinking about that for us today, in our culture, in our climate right now, it's not very much fun to talk about the return, the second coming of, of Christ. I, I, and I know that there are those that get really excited about it. There are those who talk a lot about it online, but they're the exception and, and not the rule. And as I was thinking about that, even in our own context, I was wondering why that would be the case, even in our own lives. Like, why is it that we don't get excited about the idea that Jesus is, is coming back? Like he promised he's coming back and I was reading uh, this, it was, it's from a book, but it was actually a quote that I found it online in an article from a guy who has maybe one of the coolest names you'll hear today, Cornelius Plantinga. Uh, and Cornelius Plantinga, in this piece, uh, was, was writing about that very thing, about why we, specifically in a Western context, don't get that excited about this idea of the second coming of Jesus what he just promised. You're going to see me coming in the clouds. He just promised it. Why would we not be excited? 
And this is what Neil, this is about halfway down. I'll post the article in the, in the private Facebook group. But he says, when our own kingdom has had a good year, we aren't necessarily excited. Uh, we aren't necessarily looking forward to God's kingdom. When life is good, redemption doesn't sound that good. That's how things go. God's redemption is good news for people whose life is bad news. If you are a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or a slave in an antebellum Mississippi, you want your redemption. If you are an Israelite exiled in Babylon or a Kosovar exiled in Albania, this was written around uh, the year 2000, you want your redemption. If you are a woman in modern India, it doesn't matter what caste you belong to, and your husband, your fiancé, doesn't think your family has come up with a big enough dowry, and if he looks, he locks you in a closet for three months, or calls up his buddy and threatens to have them rape you and kill you, which happens in modern India right now, he says, uh, if you're a modern woman for such a predicament, you want your redemption from wicked sexism, and you want it with every fiber of your being. According to the scripture, the person who wants redemption wants the kingdom of God, whether she knows it or not. And the coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king, the one who will return with power and with great glory. However, we are to understand this apocalyptic event. However you understand it, whatever form it takes, the second coming of Jesus means to a Christian that God's righteousness will at last fill the earth. I thought about that uh, a little bit this week. This uh, image right now is from, uh, this is from a young man in Haiti who was uh, diagnosed with diabetes a, a couple of years ago. Lives up in the mountains. Uh, the teams from Restore Haiti were trying to get the medication to him. Uh, if you have diabetes in America, it is a hard disease. It's, it's not easy. It's very complicated, and the medications are expensive. But if you live in Haiti, that isn't even really an option for you. So we were able to get medication to him in the mountains. But then the protests began. They began to block off the roads. The guys trying to get the medication to him were being forced to pay bribes just to get to him. And I'm sad to say that he is with Jesus. Now he, he didn't make it. And I would say that for this young man, that Jesus' return is a, is a deep desire for their family. Uh, my girl, uh, Shannon, and I have sponsored for almost 15 years, a girl named Farah. She needs a surgical operation right now that she cannot get in her country. She needs to get to the Dominican. It sounds easy, but it's not. You've got to get the paperwork. You've got to get the visas, the, the passports, and then get her there for something that we could drive to Williamson for. And I understand the medical situation in America is not perfect. I totally get it. But if you had a headache this week and you took an Advil, if you had a fever and you took a Tylenol, you have it better than like the vast majority of the world. And, and to not suggest that as just a buzzkill, I want to say why I'm, I'm sharing this with you. I'm looking at David right here in the front row and I know you guys just lost one of your guys just this last year. And by the way, there's a clinic coming in Africa that you guys paid to do. David is seeing it happen. So there is a, a clinic there. But even with that, it can't save everybody. We're in a world where we will run out of money long before the world runs out of needs. But here's what he says. People with crummy lives, he goes on to say, the people with crummy lives want it to happen now. If you are a Christian in sub-Saharan Africa today, you 
don't yawn when somebody mentions the return of Christ. And then he ends it with this. He says, when, we, uh, when our own life is sweet, we can look across the world to lives that aren't sweet. We can raise our heads and our hopes for those lives. That's from Luke chapter 21. That raise your head, your hope, your redemption draws nigh. It says we can weep with those who weep. We can hope with those who hope. We can look across the world. We can look across the room. We can look across the pew. It's natural to hope for ourselves, and it's healthy to do that. But it's unnatural to hope only for ourselves and how parochial it is to do that. What he would go on to say is that there are those that have a real passion for the return of Christ, right? Real passion, that may not be you, but could we have a compassion for the return of Christ? A compassion that acknowledges that when my girl got the flu this last week, we were able to take her to a doctor who got her medication and she is recovered, that, that happened because we're here. But could we have that and say, well, we're pretty good right now. I'd, let's let Jesus take a while. But in other words, to say, but what about a compassionate response to say, but could I long and yearn for his return because I happen to live in this bubble. I happen to live in this brief geographical place in this short place in history where this happens to be where I am. I can still look at with compassion for the desire for Christ to return, to set it right. And I, I wanted to set that tone because in the few minutes I have, I want to tell you how I think that this is going to happen. I want to tell you that I think Jesus is going to keep his promise, that he is going to return. It is not bad news. It is fantastic news. And he answers this questions with the disciples here. He's basically, chapter 13 just literally lays out in, in this way. He, he's saying, this is what he's going to do. Like, guys, this is what I'm going to do. This is when I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. And this is why I'm going to do it. Like, those are the four questions that chapter 13 of Mark answers. The what? I mean, it's pretty clear. I am going to return. I'm coming back. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And I wondered this morning, uh, Don, I'm actually anxious to read your book because I don't know if you went into this or I don't know. It hit me for the first time. He hadn't left yet. I don't know that they knew what he was talking about. Like, I'm, you're going to see me coming in the clouds. I don't know that they understood that there was going to be an ascension where he would go to heaven and that he would return one day in the clouds. I mean, for all I know, he, they thought it was going to be like an Elijah fiery chariot or, you know, coming in and riding in the clouds that way. I, who knows? What we do know is that he told them that I'm coming back. That's what I'm going to do. 300 times that I know of in the New Testament that speak of the return of Jesus, a literal return of Jesus. He is coming back. If Jesus himself talked about it 30 times, do you think maybe we should pay attention, right? Like that's, a, he said that was going to happen. That's what he's going to do. And the question of how is a question that has sold millions of books, movie tickets, uh, the Nicolas Cage movie, notwithstanding. Some other ones have been. <laughs> did anybody see the Nicolas Cage version of that? God bless Nicolas Cage. That was not very good. It did help uh, Kirk. It helped Kirk Cameron's career. Like, we all know that. Like, that was good. Um, but all those movies, the, 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 the fictional versions of it, are just their attempt to at figure out how it's going to happen. Like, how is he going to do it? 
can I take this off? I'm, I'm, <laughs> sorry. Well, because <laughs> I don't know if sexy and, and sweaty are the same. So I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm smolder. What? Oh, slowly. Sorry. I'm, Now smolder. <laughs> I'm getting coaching. <laughs> How is he going to do it? Look, there, that's a question that, is, uh, that has been asked for a while now. And in the how question, we know he's coming back in the clouds. Like we, we see that kind of thing. We see that he is going to physically return. But, you know, it's probably, worth, it's probably worth visiting this because there's a little bit of a debate that has unfolded over time. And the debate is this, that did what we're reading here in Mark 13 already happen, and now this is all in the past. There are very wise, godly men who love Jesus, who view the word of God as authoritative, who say that that's what happened. Uh, N.T. Wright would be one of those that says that. Um, there are others that are, uh, C.S. Lewis would say that. Um, and with all due respect to people that are uh, that, that smart, all due respect to, if you in this room, I want to I encourage you to think of it in a different way, to, to at least think this through. When we say let the Bible interpret the Bible, what I mean is this. If I just take Mark 13 and I build an entire doctrine from just that verse, it, it, let the Bible interpret the Bible means I need to see what the rest of the Bible says about it. In fact, a really good rule of thumb is if it was spoken of in the Old Testament, prophesied there, if Jesus taught about it, if the disciples wrote and practiced it, that's a good sign that that is a doctrine that is safe and that is orthodox and that we should pay attention to. It's not the only way, but it's a good rule of thumb. The Old Testament spoke of a return of a king that would conquer, okay? Jesus spoke of a king that would come back. The New Testament is permeated with verses about him coming back physically. So why is it that some people think that this was just about the temple? I think it's simply because of a confusion that in Mark 13, 3, if you've got your Bible, go to verse 3, and he just, in verses 3 and 4, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. We see Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asking him this question. And they say, verse 4, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? That is one question there. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three have the same story. Again, it's like if a train derails in Nashville and three different news stations report on it, three of them are all going to have their, they're telling the same story but emphasizing something different. So in the Mark version, that's the only way we know that it was those four disciples there. They do not say that in Luke or in Matthew. But in Matthew, we see that what he's asking, what he's being asked, isn't just about the temple. In Matthew 24, verse 3, you can turn or you could go there later. The question they asked is, Tell us, they said, when will this happen, the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's two questions, not one. And so when you read Mark 13, understand he's answering a question about an event that happens over a span of time, not just the temple. 
The end of the age, your return. They were looking for that in their time. Joel chapter two, three, four, talking about the last days. Peter would stand up in the book of Acts and say, in the last days, meaning the last days started at that point. To, to put it differently, and this might help to alleviate some of the confusion. If, if someone were to say in maybe a more modern time, uh, World War II, can you tell us about the coming of World War II, right? Tell us about how that's going to happen and how it will end. They're asking about one event, World War II. They're asking about one event, the end of the age. But inside of World War II, there's all these things that happen. You know, the, the beaches of Normandy, Hiroshima, all of that included in World War II, but it was one event. So if in that context, tell us about the coming of World War II. How will we know the signs of it are going to happen? There's going to be a guy in Germany. He's going to rise up. His name is Hitler. There's going to be the Nazi thing. And in the East, he's, this is how you know it's coming. And this is how you know it's here. And you, I'm not going to tell you exactly how it's going to end. But when Hiroshima is bombed, you're going to know it's over. Like, this is the plan that's happening. And they knew a lot of this ahead of time, but they wouldn't have said it. They, in the same way that Jesus isn't revealing all of his plans ahead of time, by the way. You, you understand that, like, they didn't fax Hitler and say, hey, uh, we're coming to Normandy on this day. Uh, generals don't do that with their plans. But, but the point of this is that we're in a place right now where we're looking to the future, trying to figure out what God is going to do. And we can look at this and say that we know he's coming. We know that he's coming with 10,000s of his saints. The rest of the Bible says this. And we know that how he's coming is he's literally coming in a physical thing with great clouds, with glory, with power, that that's the promise of this. Now, the question that you might have for me today, the question I have for me, what do I think? How do I think it's going to happen? You didn't think I was going to let you go without telling you what I thought, did you? The Bible speaks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 of this time. Paul, when Jesus was going to come with a trumpet and with a shout, and it's nothing to be scared of because it's going to be glorious, that it's actually a rescue that's about to happen to our planet. And he says in that passage, he speaks of us being caught up in the clouds. The Greek word is a, a word called harpazo. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. The Latin word, when it's translated into Latin, is the word raptus. That's where we get our word rapture from. If you hear people say that they don't believe in the rapture because the word rapture is not in the Bible, uh, that is true, unless you're reading a Latin Bible, and then it's in the Bible. It's, but the idea is there. And here's what I believe, and I'm going to give you a timeline. I, I'm going to tell you this. I am not a good timeline guy. You can look. It looks like my kid made this timeline, but it's the best attempt I could give you to say that what I think is coming down the pipeline for us. The last days, when you look at the far left, the first coming of Jesus, right? The crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection. And Peter said, the last days. And the last days started the day the day of Pentecost came. And they go until today. World War II started at a certain place and it ended at a certain place. The last day started at this place and it will end at a certain place. Now, what I believe is that Jesus is going to come and to take us. I put the three different views up there. There's the view that he's going to take us out. Remember in Mark, it talks about this time of great tribulation. 
And by the way, if I've lost anybody, it won't be the first time. Just raise your hand and say, look, whoa, 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 back way up. So, and it won't hurt my feelings even a little bit. Jesus's return, what he says right here, uh, the catching away of us. There are those who believe that that is going to happen before most of what you read in Mark 13 happens. It's a, a rapture before the time of great tribulation happens on the earth. There are those who believe that about halfway through this great tribulation, Revelation tells us is a seven-year period, that halfway through that we will be raptured and taken away. And then there are those who think that at the end of the seven years, Christian, am I getting you? You got this? Right? It's pretty, it's pretty, at the end of that seven years, Jesus is coming back. Now, there are God-loving, God-fearing, biblical people who believe all three of those. And they're all going to the Bible and all saying that it's authoritative. I'm going to tell you why I think that he's going to take us out before the great tribulation period. And I encourage you to go to the word and I encourage you to seek it out for yourself. And you might come down somewhere different, but that's my encouragement is for you to do that. First Thessalonians five, when he talks about this catching away, he goes on to say that you are not appointed unto wrath. Us, Jesus people, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ on the cross. We're not appointed unto wrath. Revelation 16 tells us that that time, that great tribulation that's been never before or never again, that that time of tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out. Revelation 16, the bulls are wrath. Now, does God, is he going to build us a biodome somewhere and put us in there and protect us from the wrath? I don't know, maybe. But that doesn't seem to be what I'm reading in scripture. And we have way more things that we could talk about than we have time. But that's one reason we're not appointed under wrath. The second reason is this. When I read the book of Revelation, I just uh, taught it in Nepal just a few months ago. And I taught it in Nepal because the people of Nepal, they're not yawning about the coming of Jesus. Communism is taking over. They're being thrown in prison. Come quickly, Lord. And as I taught through Revelation yet again, I was just reminded that, you know, and there are guys like, I mean, you know, John Calvin wrote a whole bunch of commentaries and when he got to Revelation, he put his pen down. Martin Luther didn't think it should have been included in the canon of scripture. Who were the four guys at the present when Jesus was being told, was telling them about the end and the signs. Peter, James, Andrew, John. John was there. And we were just talking last night. I didn't ask for permission, so I'm not going to say his name. But he's not alone in this. I've heard this before. I've actually wondered it before. How do we know that John isn't just some crazy, deranged guy with PTSD on an island by himself writing crazy talk? Right? Isn't that sound like a legitimate question? I would challenge you, go Google and read Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. Find any psycho you want, find their manifesto, and then compare it to the writing of Revelation. Those guys, when they write it, it's, it's crazy. The, the sentences flow together. It's incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. But Revelation is written beautifully. Revelation is written poetically. Revelation is written brilliantly. 400 allusions from the Old Testament, all we weaven, woven? Someone get the verbs. What is it? Woven. Together in one book. That's not the work of a deranged man. 
That's the work of a man filled with the Holy Spirit and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that because the book of Revelation, is we're told it's a hard book to understand, and I want you to know that I don't think anything could be further from the truth. In fact, it's the only book that comes with a promise of a blessing for those who read, who keep, who hold it, who dig into it. And if you follow this book chronologically, if you follow it, you take it at face value. Revelation 1 verse 19 tells us, this is what Jesus told John, write those things which you see, write those things which are, and those things which are to come. And that word are to come in Greek is the word metatauta. That's going to be important in a second. Write those things which you see. And it's an outline of the book itself. It flows perfectly. Write those things which you see. Chapter one, he sees Jesus and he writes about Jesus. This book of, there's a sword in his mouth and this white hair and fires. This Jesus that they saw in the Old Testament, they're now seeing coming back in his glory. Write what you see. Write those things which are. Chapters two and three are the seven letters to seven churches. They literally flow perfectly the seven segments of church history for the last 2,000 years. It's mind-blowing how much they fit together with each one of these parts of church history. And then chapter four, verse one, it starts with come up. Uh, actually, it starts with come up here, but it starts with metatauta after these things, right? Those things which are to come, metatauta. Chapter four, metatauta, come up here. In four and five, you see heaven and it's beautiful. And the church in heaven, you see that idea of what's happening in heaven for that chapters four and five. And it's not like a detour. It's saying, hey, while this is happening in heaven in chapters four and five, chapters six through 19 is what we see as the great tribulation period. That's where that word comes from. And you see it unfolding here on earth. And in chapters six through 19, there is one thing notably missing, the church. You don't see the church again in chapter 6 through 19. One more reason why I think that we won't be here for that period. We are not appointed unto wrath. Chapters 20, there's the millennial period, the thousand year reign of Christ, of peace and prosperity on this earth. Chapters, at the end of that, there's this great white throne judgment where God judges the living and the dead. Chapters 22, uh, 21, 22, new heaven and new earth. Chapter 22, we live happily ever after. Revelation is not a hard book to understand. You just follow the chronological order that it comes in. Follow it in the way that it was written. And it does give you a beautiful picture of a loving God who is coming to rescue those from, that are his own. How is he going to do it? I, I believe that's how he's going to do it. There are others who don't believe that. And I want you to know in this church, if you don't, it's something different or something there. As long as we're going back to the word of God and saying, it says this in the word, what about that in the word? You are welcome here. There's the idea, what we uh, jokingly, uh, David Schindel was talking about this, that, you know, you get the pre-tribulation people who believe he's going to come before, those who believe in the middle, because that's really when the judgment comes, and then those who think it's at the end. But then there are what we call pantheists. Do you know about what those are? The pantheist is, it's just all going to pan out. So we don't have to, or the pantribbers, I'm sorry, pantheist is a whole different thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a whole different sermon right there. But pan trips are it's just going to pan. It's all going to it's all going to pan out. When is this going to happen? We don't know the day, we don't know the hour. But we'll know the seasons. 
First Thessalonians 5 tells us that you are not children of the darkness, so this day is not gonna come like a thief in the night for you. Jesus actually says, in those days, at that time, like there is a time, there is a season. We do not know the day and the hour, but we can know the seasons. And for 2,000 years, I mean, it's hard to stand on your tiptoes. Like, is it now? Is it now? For two, I get that. For 2,000 years, that's hard. But you're gonna know the seasons. You're gonna come. He talks about wars and he talks about rumors of wars. You know that more people were killed in armed conflict in the 20th century than any time in human history combined before that. I was just yesterday listening to a, a piece on uh, the 60 most dangerous words in the, uh, in the government and the law right now, and it's the words that have authorized the president to use force. And uh, people have political opinions on both sides of that aisle. But here's what they were saying, the way this was worded, that we no longer we declare war the way we used to declare. You know, a guy stands up and I declare war, right? I declare <laughs> That doesn't happen anymore. That has not happened since World War II. But what also hasn't happened is we no longer, we're not at war with nations, we're at war with groups. And this guy gets mad at this group, so he joins a different group. So we don't know who we're at war with. And part of the, the premise of the story is that because of that, they don't, there's a list maybe somewhere of who we're at war with, but you and I don't know who that is. And I used to think rumors of war meant is rumors of wars that are already, you know, they're going to start or maybe this war is going to start or that war is going to start. When I finish this, I'm realizing that there are rumors of war of who we're at war with. Are we at war with these people or not? We don't know. Rumors of war. And here's what was interesting. They ended this with this idea, which is that if we don't live in a place anymore where we know who the enemy is, when we know when we're going to attack the enemy, how do we know who we're at war with? How, how do we know? This is the line. How do we even know the difference between war and peace any longer? See, society has changed. Civilization has changed. We're living at a time of wars and rumors of wars, and I could literally cross-reference pretty much everything else in this with the world that we're in. But here's what I want you to know. He says that we're going to know, we're going to see these things, but when you see the, the buds begin to on the fig tree, and there is a group of people I see the value in this idea that that speaks of when Israel was born as a nation. Fig tree in the biblical language speaks of Israel. Israel in 1948 became a country. It was the first time in the history of humanity where a nation had been wiped off the face of the earth and now is become a nation again. And there's the prophet that says, shall the nation, shall a nation become a nation in a day? And it did. It happened in a day. And that nation exists to this day. There are those who say that that's what that specifically talks about. And that this generation will not pass away. Maybe. But I want to tell you part of the why that Jesus is coming back is actually also embedded in that idea of the fig tree. Because in that fig tree, he says, you'll know summer is coming because the buds are beginning to come. You see it. The leaves have fallen off. It's dead. It's dry. But the, the leaves are beginning to bud. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember what happened when Aslan was on the return? Remember, always winter and never Christmas. And what happened? All of a sudden, spring began to come back. I believe this is a picture of what God, the why he is coming back, because he is going to restore all things. It will be spring. It will be summer forever to restore it all. We called this series Restored for a reason 
because that is what Jesus has come to do, to restore you, to restore me, to restore creation, that everything sad will become untrue. Neil Cornelius Planinga ends his piece with this. I skipped way ahead. Cornelius Plantinga Jr., at the end of his piece, he says this, Jesus' words here in Mark 13 are an antidote to our sloth, an antidote to our worldly cynicism, an antidote even to the scorn of prophecy buffs. For those of you that make fun of the prophecy buff people, this is an anecdote for even you. You don't have to make fun of that. Jesus' words are meant to raise our heads and raise our hopes. Justice really could come to earth. Could husbands quit beating up their wives? Could wives quit blaming themselves? Could Yasser Arafat, again, this is 2000, Yasser Arafat and Ehud Barak look each other's eyes and see a, a brother? Could some of us who struggle with addictions or with diseases that trap us, could we be liberated by God and start to walk in the kingdom of God? Could Jesus Christ appear among us in some way that our poverty-stricken minds can never imagine in a scenario that would simply erase our smug confidence about where the lines of reality are drawn? Could little boys and girls in Togo and Benchal, Africa not have to worry about being sick and dying anymore just because they got a cold? Could even in America, those young people that have died from the flu this year, that's a, that's a horrifying thing, even in our own country, not have to worry about that anymore. Could you no longer be at war with your spouse or with your children? Could they, that's the redemption of the Lord, the restoration of all things. And that's why he's coming back. But I need you to hear me say this, if you don't hear me say anything else. He's not coming back for everyone. He's coming back for his elect. And I hesitated to use that word because I know in a, in, a, in a Christian nation like this, I say elect and the Armenians and the Calvinists are already drawing your lines. So I'm going to treat you like adults because we're adults. And put that away for just a second. And to say this, that who he's coming back for is not everyone. When I, you hear me say the name of a guy like Richard Rohr, I want you to know why I'm talking about a guy like that because in his book, The Universal Christ, he says that Jesus is going to save everyone, everyone. Now, I don't know where he gets that from because he's not getting it from the Bible. You didn't get it from Jesus's words. When we started Mark chapter uh, one, I said, this is, we're going here because the only way we know what Jesus did or said, the only thing we know that he thought or whatever is from here. There is no other record of what Jesus did, said, thought, or wanted than right here. And anything that you see that doesn't come from those words is someone that is added on later. And he's not coming back for everybody. He's coming back for those who are his own. And those who have accepted the work, the finished work of Christ, those who have received that work. When you say election, it's an election year, so that's going to be fun. What is an election? It means you're voting for someone. He is electing you. What does that mean? He voted for you. Who would God vote for in this election? you. Now, he's not going to do it with punching a hole in a ballot. No, he did it by having a hole punched in his hands and, and in his feet. Not just to be a good example, not just to start a revolution, but to pay for the sins 
that you or I could not possibly pay for. So that one day when he comes for us who have received that finished work of the cross, that we'll be with him. That's what Paul says, we'll be with him forever. And Jesus is as inclusive as anybody. He wants all, all come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's as inclusive as anybody could possibly be. I'm not gonna make you do any work at all. I'll do all the work and all you have to do is receive it. Praise God for that. And that's who he's coming back for. Stand to your feet. I'm gonna get you the Titans. Um, <laughs> sorry. You thought I forgot. Gang, this is good news for us. And this week, if you've been scared of the return of Jesus, ask yourself why. Is it because I don't think I'm going with him? Have you believed on his work? Have you received the finished work of the, the cross? Have you said, Jesus, I believe, I confess with my mouth, you're, you're Lord, I, I, you're safe in his hands. You don't have to be scared like that. If you have not, if you've decided, no, I'm going to be good and I'm going to make this on my own, I'm going to be about my works and my thing and not about Jesus' work for me, you should be scared because you are rejecting the work that Christ did for you. And that work is finished and it's perfect and there wasn't one drop of blood wasted on it. And I want you to know that I believe he could come back at any moment and I'm not gonna do the altar call. We're not gonna have somebody do a trumpet, none of that. I'm just saying that it could happen at any moment. And based upon my conversation, even with Farah this morning, our little girl down in Haiti, I would love it if it were just this afternoon because I'm just, sometimes I just get tired of those conversations. Sometimes it's just exhausting and I don't know. We don't have enough money. We can't save them all. We can't save them all, David. But Jesus will one day. All Jesus, love you. Thank you for your goodness and for your kindness. We know that you have the plan. We know that you have it under control. And our, I mean, it's not even our job, Lord. It's our privilege to be found waiting, to be found watching, to know that someday when you do that return, that we're going to be reunited with those who have gone on before. And a time of no more death, a time of no more sorrow, of no more sickness, that's, it seems too good to be true. And yet it's what you promised us. And so today, Lord, we hold on to that. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.